Resiliency Within, with host Elaine Miller-Karras, is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller-Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. And I also want to let our listeners know that we're also live streaming on Resiliency Within's Facebook page if you'd like to see Karen Lesage and I in person. Um, today's show was planned before the events of the last week, but I can't think of a better guest today um, than Karen, who, you know, we call this show when we uh, were thinking about what to call it, Empowering Children from Adversity to Inner Strength. And when we think about the uh, children who, you know, just a, a little over a week ago were living in very hopefully peaceful homes and their worlds have been upended. Um, we are going to be talking about trauma and also to talk about strategies to heal the trauma that children may experience during their life. So I would say that Karen Lesage empowers children and families. Her work was recently recognized um, for outstanding contributions with the Child Care BC, that's British Columbia, Awards of Excellence Child Care Leadership Award. This happened in May of 2023. So what we're going to be talking about is some of her own experience. Karen's going to talk about her early life, which was marked by significant adversity that ultimately led to a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. And we're going to explore um, today how she discovered her inner strength and resilience through her mission of empowering others. And I have to say, I've seen this happen with so many people that from what's happened to them, um, they really have created new healing for others so that people don't have to experience some of the suffering that they did as children. And I think Karen's life is a perfect example of that. So Karen's journey will shed light on her experiences, experiences supporting families and children as a supported child development consultant in Vancouver's downtown east side. These experiences revealed to her that despite societal marginalization, individuals possess a wealth of wisdom, knowledge, and unique perspectives from which they can all benefit. And since 2020, Karen has been a certified community resiliency model teacher. We're so proud that she's part of our CRIM family and has trained numerous early childhood educators in British Columbia. And she will share how she applies this model, not only for herself healing, but also the moments where her PTSD symptoms um, um, take over, <laughs> but she has something she can do now that are the CRIM skills, and I'm sure other skills as well. And also she's trained numerous early, um, early childhood educators in CRIM as well. So she also is um, a yoga teacher and a behavior interventions, and she aims to ensure that children and youth understand that they are not alone in their struggles. And we know that that is such an important thing for kids to know that they're not alone. And through her story, she aims to provide hope and support to those facing similar challenges. 
So I want to just say a little bit more about Karen, and then we're going to turn it over to her so she can share some of her wisdom. Is she is the chair of the Early Childhood Education Program at Ridge Meadows College in Maple Ridge, British Columbia, Canada. She's also a registered children's yoga teacher and a consultant specializing in affirming neurodivergent behavior intervention. She has over 25 years of experience with children from birth to 19 in childcare and community settings. So I just want to say, welcome, welcome, Karen. And I know you want to share something as we get started that's very dear to you and other Canadians. Thank you, Elaine. I just want to um, acknowledge that I am coming to you from the traditional unceded shared territories of the Katsi and Kwantlen First Peoples here in um, what is known as settler language is Maple Ridge, British Columbia. So, well, thank you for that. And, and again, welcome. And as we get started today, is there anything on your mind that you would like to just kind of bring forth? And we have I have some questions for you as well. So is there anything in your mind that you'd like to get started with today? I think just um, like you mentioned, the past week has been quite troublesome. I know for me with my PTSD and seeing what's sort of happening in the world um, and thinking about all those other little children that um, are facing trauma, new traumas, um, and feeling a little bit helpless because I'm in Canada um, and what can I do to help? Uh, so that, that's been weighing a bit heavy on me. Yeah, and I, you know, I think I've I've spoken to so many people around the world in the last um in the last week, um, initially people from Israel and also people from Palestine, and hearing that there are innocents and people that are about peace, not about wanting to have war or to have anything happen, you know, to their families by a terrorist attack, for example, um, and so I think what I would want to say from resiliency within's perspective. We really want to promote healing in the world and bridges that hopefully we can bring more peaceful solutions to what's happening, not only in that part of the world, but many parts of the world that have been experiencing conflict. And I think the other part of that is I have a belief that undigested war trauma impacts people throughout a lifetime that sometimes can create people that, not, that do not do nice things to others. And if we can help people digest that trauma and release it from themselves and listen to them and help them know that there is other ways to deal with the with the trauma and the side effects of war, then perhaps we could have a more peaceful world. Now, that may be a lofty, you know, um, idea, Karen, but I think it may be possible if we help people heal. And that's why, you know, when I heard about your work up there in Canada, I really wanted to talk to you about what you're doing with children, but I know that part of that has to do with, ha with what happened to you. And so um, what would you like to share about your past that has informed the work that you're doing in the world right now? Um, well, I grew up not in a traditional sort of way, I guess. Um, I grew up in small communities that were typically fairly isolated. Um, lack of services. You know, I was an 80, I was born in the 70s, an 80s child. Um, mental health was not really looked at very much back then. There weren't a lot of services. Um, and I grew up, um, when I did the adverse childhood experiences test or quiz, I found that my score was nine out of 10. Um, and I did that as an adult, just as I learned more about trauma, because as a child, I felt so alone in what I was experiencing. And so I grew up, um, with various family members. And then eventually I um, 
left home at the age of 16 and became my own guardian and sort of found my way from that while still maintaining a relationship with my family because I have a core belief that everyone does the best they can at any given moment in time with the information that they have. Um, So I don't think that my family purposely tried to cause me harm as I don't think any other family does, but that people, people have their own traumas they're dealing with. There's a lot of other factors that influence um, choices people make. And so um, I've always tried to maintain a contact with my family um, and just be part of that healing process for everyone, I guess. Well, and I, I love your compassionate vista of the world. And for people that don't know about adverse child experiences, I want to just say a couple things about it, is that there were 10 adverse child experiences that were um, um, uh, identified by the first study that was done actually in San Diego, California. Um, and what they found that when people had um, uh, four or more of these adverse childhood experiences, which included, for example, if there was abuse in the home, if one of the family members had a mental illness or an alcohol program um, problem, there were 10 things that were pretty basic regarding the abuse that children could, could experience. But if you had four or more, that you had exponentially higher incidence of having all sorts of immune um, illnesses, fibromyalgia, um, diabetes, chronic um, uh, pulmonary disease. And if you had six or more, that your chances of being an IV drug abuser were something like 3,200 times um, higher than if you had zero adverse child experiences. So when someone takes the, the, the um, evaluation and says nine, for some people, it's an, oh my God moment, I better go to the doctor right away. It also causes mental health challenges too, like post-traumatic stress disorder. But I think that, and I, you know, if you all could see Karen, Karen has a big smile on her face. And that's because we can mitigate the impact, reduce the impact of adverse child experiences now, not only as adults, but also for the children that come in our, um, that we can possibly impact to help them see themselves in a different way. So I just wanted to give that little background about ACEs. Um, and so um, can you just tell us a little bit more about when you learned about ACEs then and that you had nine. I mean, that was a pretty, that can be a pretty uh, sobering moment, to say the least. Um, what happened after that? Uh, so I learned about ACEs about 10 years ago, 10 or 12 years ago. And yeah, looking at the statistics, because I'm a statistics person, I was a little bit fearful. Yes. <laughs> because the stats don't sound very good or very promising. But then looking at um, the positive childhood experiences, paces, looking at um, how, you know, reading Nadine Burke Harris's information, Bessel van der Kolk's information, Gabor Matei, all their work, and realizing that we can mitigate trauma and that I had done some of those things already without even realizing that. Uh, and also have done it in my work for other children because I've worked with a lot of children in foster care um, over my career. And I've always, as a youth, um, I did, I did, um, I'll just share this. I did go to a bridge one night when I was 18 because I was, um, I kind of felt hopeless and that it, everything was my fault and that I would not recover from this. And, and I just didn't know what else to do. And I, you know, I just wanted something to change. And I thought that would be my only way out, so to speak. But standing on that bridge in the middle of the night, I reflected on just my life and things and, believing that everything happens for a reason and maybe 
um, these things that happened to me so that I could go on to help others not experience the same things as I did. And that maybe that was my purpose here. Um, And so I sort of made a promise to myself on that bridge that um, if I made it through, that I would try to ensure that every child that crossed my path knew that they were cared for and that there was an adult there that was, that would listen to them and hear them and do their best that they could to support them. Um, And so that's sort of where the journey began to sort of turn things, looking at it differently. Oh my goodness. That's a powerful story. Was there anything that happened on that bridge? Like, did you see a light? I mean, I'm just wondering, was it your own thoughts? Was there you know, maybe a mentor's words that all of a sudden popped in your head? Was there anything that all of a sudden went from, I think I'm going to end my life to, oh, if I get out of this, get off this bridge today, I'm going to devote my life to helping others. That's a, that's an amazing transition. Yeah. I'm not quite sure what it was exactly. I just, I remember looking down at the water and just thinking, I don't want to die. I actually don't want to die. I just want this suffering to end and something to change. And I think realizing that I actually didn't want to die. I just wanted things different. Um, And how, how could I do that? How, you know, I had um, some really great friends that knew about the things that I was struggling with, some teachers that knew and were really supportive. And I think that made a big difference for me, even though it was a very small circle, just having a couple people um, gave me that strength, I guess. Well, I want to say that in um, Christina Bethel, who is a leading researcher of positive childhood experiences, she names six different factors that can help reduce the impact of adverse childhood experiences. And you just named two of them, having two unrelated adults who genuinely care for you and having a group of friends that care for you. And then that can make a difference of, you know, having that um, safety net in your life. And, you know, maybe that was one of the things that helped you that night, knowing that they were there, because some children may not feel they have that. Mm -hmm. So I just want to emphasize those were positive childhood experiences and that those may have helped you off that bridge that day. So once you made it off the bridge, because you did, because you're here with me right now. (laughs) So here you were 16 when you left home. So you were young. And here you you're at a university, you're at a college campus now. So there is that's like pretty um, that's pretty amazing. So what happened in between that? Yeah, and- I, it's it's shocking to me too because I honestly did not see this path. This is not what I what my goal was in life. My goal was just to work with children um, and try to to change their outcomes. Um, so I think it was a lot of just my journey. I decided to go into early childhood education, which was not a field that my family or other people were very supportive of because it's not a very, I don't know how it is in other parts of the world. It's not a very highly respected field in Canada. It's changing or a very highly compensated field, but it's a field you go into if you have passion. Um, and so just the families and the children that I worked with over the years, and the um and the the staff that I've worked with, I remember one very distinct um, situation with a little 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 boy. And 
when I went to school, we were always taught, don't share anything about your personal experience, right? With any clients, with any children, because it's not about you, it's about them. But this little fellow was just really struggling living in foster care and not understand. He was three, wondering why his mom didn't want him, all those really hard, hard feelings and had a lot of very, um, what people would deem as aggressive behaviors, but it was his way of just trying to cope and make sense of his world. And one day just sitting in the cubbies, I remember it like it was yesterday. And I just looked at him and I thought, I'm going to share something with this little guy. So he doesn't think he's alone. And I said, you know what? I didn't grow up with my tummy mommy either for a long time. And he looked at me and his face and he's, he was just like, you mean we're the same? Oh. And I'm like, we are. And, and from that day forward, he was like my little buddy. And we just really connected because I think he could relate to just like me as a little kid thinking I was the only one. Finally, he had an adult that he could relate to that kind of got it. Everyone's experience is different, but he, he got that, he, you know, like he could still, I, I hope for him, he could see that maybe that can be me one day. Well, it sounds like he, he did when he said that back to you. And I love the way you put it. I didn't grow up with my tummy mommy either. I mean, so he could understand that as a three-year-old, what you were talking to him about. But when you even, I have to say that I had tears in my eyes when I hear that story, because of that little moment, that connection, you know, could have changed the trajectory of that little boy's life. And knowing that the work that you've done and even being honored by British Columbia, um, I imagine you have impacted many children's lives. So let me ask you a little bit of a different question, um, which is about who have been your biggest influences? Who have you met along your pathway that have said, you know, you mentioned your friends, your teachers, maybe they you want to talk about them or others. Because I think that's also important. If someone's sitting out there going, gosh, I feel like going to that bridge too. You know, there are things that can pull us back from that. And you mentioned um, really two important factors in your life. So can you tell us a little bit more about your influences? Um, well, it's it was always really hard to talk about your home life, right? I come from a small community. We don't share that information, right? We don't want to bring shame to our families or anything like that. Um, but I did... Um, a guidance counselor at school. He was also my my grade 10 science teacher and moved on to be a guidance counselor, Mr. Van Leeuwen. Um, <laughs> and he approached me one day and just asked how things were going um, and how I was doing and that he'd heard that I was struggling and that I was kind of couch surfing and, and things like that. And I just kind of broke down and was like, okay, here's somebody I can talk to that the way he approached it wasn't shameful. He wasn't criticizing me or, or using some of those other things that I'd run into in other places where people were like, well, what did you do wrong? Um, which is some of people's responses. He was came from a very caring um, perspective and I didn't share everything with him, but he helped me find a place to live, um, supported housing. Um, he helps me navigate school. I always did really well in school. School was my safety zone. Um, I was always an A student because I was safe there and I excelled there and people praised me and were were happy to have me around. Um, so he helped me navigate just changing my schedule a little bit to make life a little bit easier, um, keeping my secret that I didn't live with my parents um, so that um, it wasn't out in the school culture. 
I went to a school that had uniforms. So thankfully that was, that was a protective factor. So nobody knew that I didn't have money or things like that. Um, and then I just had a really good group of a few core friends that knew a bit about my story and were supportive and always let me know that they cared. And I'm still friends with them to this day. Um, that's how long we've been friends um, and what an impact they had. And again, like that lack of, like there was no judgment there was no telling me, well, you should do this, or maybe your behavior was the reason or things like that. I think we have to come from a lens of regardless of what a child's behaviors are, that they don't ever deserve violence or or things like that or, happening to them. Criticism. Criticism, and, yeah. That, I mean, that doesn't mean that you don't guide someone who may be making, you know, maybe some decisions that could send them down a slippery slope, but it's the way that you approach them. Well, and I just love that you were, have you ever contacted the um, guidance counselor uh, again? Did he know that would happen to you in your life? No, I, I've been tempted to reach out and see if he's still around at the school just to let him know that I turned out okay, that everything worked <laughs> yes, out. And, that might mean a lot to him. And knows? I'm still here. <laughs> well, you know, and I think that as I ask you that question, is that some of you may be out there saying, oh, should I reach out to that kid that seems like they're having a hard time? And I'm going to say, reach out to that kid, come with that stance of compassion and empathy, because you don't know about what that one act or series of acts will do that may change the whole trajectory of that child's life. So, I mean, that's like, you know, you don't know when you do that. It's like you're putting water on something that's inside of us, right? That, that you know, there'll be a beautiful oak tree that grows, but sometimes they do wither, but oftentimes they don't. And I think that your story is such a, so emblematic of that. Um, well, so, and I ran into that little fellow that I shared the, oh, that I didn't did. live with, when he was 12. Yes. And he's looking at me. And of course, he looks very different. I look the similar, but he's grown up and he's looking at me and he's like, You're my Karen, aren't you? You're my Karen. He said, Oh my gosh, I just need kill. <laughs> so I was like, Oh, you remembered. And I'm like, Oh my goodness, I can't believe it's you. And so he caught up and he was doing much better and he'd gone on to be proud of his culture. He's an indigenous fella and he was in the same foster home and, and the foster mom was saying how great he was doing in school and, and how his behaviors had decreased. And I just, that little moment that I spent with him in the cubbies, just saying that. Yeah, oh my God, that is the sweetest story. And what a gift that you were given to actually run into him all those yeah. years later to see how he had grown. So, um, let me ask you another question. Um, so do you think, you know, oftentimes when we become passionate about something like the work that you're doing, it's because of those, those challenges that we had as youth. And maybe if you hadn't had that thought on the bridge, you wouldn't be doing the things that you're doing right now. So, you know, so sometimes when people have, let's say a past that they're not, maybe they're ashamed of, for example, maybe they think that they can't, go forward and do wonderful things in their life. So I, I don't know if you can just comment on that. And what was it that, you know, was about you that helped you to have this career path of being an amazing, compassionate educator and healer? I'm not really sure. I've asked that many times, like, why, why me? Why didn't I jump off that bridge? Why have I never used drugs? Why have I you know, turned out the way I have. And I don't know if there's an easy answer. I think it's just, um, I, I'm, I'm a determined person by nature. <laughs> but I think it's just believing that 
you know, the more I read about stories of other people and realizing that the things that happened to me were not my fault. Um, and that, like Krim says, adversity is not destiny. Yeah. Um, so my past, even though I've had, I have an A score of nine and a lot of horrible things have happened to me, it doesn't make me, like, it does play a part in who I am. And I don't know if I'd even want to change that past because it's made me who I am. It's made me be able to relate to the children I work with and the families I work with in a different way than somebody who maybe hadn't experienced that. Um, and so working on the downtown east side, I, I really enjoyed my work there and meeting the families and they've had a huge influence on my career and how I am as a person. Um, just in their mannerisms, the, the information they've shared, their outlooks, and just realizing that I wouldn't have had that connection, even though I didn't share personal a lot of personal information about me. I think it's the way I interact that they understood that I got it and that there was no judgment. Um, and I don't think I'd have that if I didn't have those adverse experiences. So I'm just wondering about, I mean, and this is maybe a hard thing to articulate, Karen, I'm not sure, but what do you think it is about what you learned that how you approach people? Because then I would think that you're not condescending towards them. You're meet them where they are. You have, you know, clearly a compassionate nature, but they sense something about you that's not judgmental. But I think that would be something if we could put that in a little, little, little perfume bottle, <laughs> bottle and say, okay, this is all you need to do. So can, can you say maybe a few things about it before we take our break? I think just realizing we all make mistakes. We all do things that we regret and that we would do differently, but we do the best we can at any given moment in time. I just always have that in my mind. And so I think just remembering that, that it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay even to say something mean to somebody, but you can repair it and you can learn from it. I've made plenty of mistakes in my life that, you know, I wish I had done things differently or said something differently, even with my own children, but understanding that I can apologize, I can repair and I can say, you know what, I'm still learning too. Right. And I think, I think that um, being that self-reflection, that we can say that to the people around us, I think that means a lot that no matter how accomplished you are, which you're clearly accomplishing, go, well, you know, sometimes I mess up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I need to do it better. <laughs> Let me know how I can do it better. And I'm saying this for myself, Karen, because I've messed up plenty. Probably this week I've messed up. And yet I'm saying, <laughs> all right, I know I need to do this better. What can I learn from this, you know, as old as I am? But I think if we also look at that trajectory, is that that learning when we're working with people about learning about how to do it better and the different things that we need to learn as not only individuals, but a family or a community are really important that because that I think that helps with the generativity of learning what people may need in order to not suffer as much and also the assets that they have. And I want to, we're going to take a, a short break. And when we come back, uh, I would love for you to share with us some of the strengths that you've seen in the families and the children that you work with. Because I mean, if we see people that have not had the same advantages of others, sometimes there's a lot of judgments that are made. There could, it looks like there could, like you said, there could have been judgments made upon you. And yet here you are, literally um, someone that is making a very big positive impact on the world. So let's talk about unwrapping that a little bit when we come back from our break. So um, um, we're going to take a just a couple minute break and we'll be back with Karen LeSage and we will hear more of, you know, you have a perfect name, by the way, Sage. You. <laughs> It's going to say is that for the wisdom that you're sharing with us at this, you know, very um, 
I think, especially what's happening in the world, a very difficult time to be able to pay close attention to our precious children is, is, um, is an attribute that we all can ascribe to maybe doing better as well. So we'll be back in just a few moments with, and continue our, our conversation with Karen LeSage. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller Karras book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine Miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine Miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Karen LeSage. And during our break, because we are also on Facebook Live, Karen has some lovely pictures behind her. And even though I know you can't see them on the radio, I'm going to have her describe one of the activities she does with um, the children that she works with. And she works um, a lot in the area area of children that are neurodivergent. And I'm going to ask her to share the project that she does and maybe tell us a little bit what that means. So Karen, over to you. Great. So um, in my spare time, when I'm not working at the college, I teach yoga to um, children from probably 18 months up to teens and um, specifically focusing on children who are and youth who are neurodivergent. So neurodivergence is um, somebody whose brain is outside of what is considered typical by mainstream society. So it could be a child with ADHD, aut- autism, 
Um, it could be um, children with mental health or youth that are struggling with mental health, all sorts of things. So any brain that is different than what society considers typical. Um, and so I had asked the preteen group, my preteen yoga group, to collect things from nature that Mother Earth had already given us. So not picking anything, but things that were already on the ground. And we created... Um, art on a canvas. I, I said, maybe it's a mandala, maybe it's whatever inspires you as a group, create these things. And so they created one that has a lot of um, natural materials around it. And then there's a box in the middle with a, a stick pointing out of it. And the group told me that they titled it, Think Outside the Box, okay. which I found wonderful because I thought that is that, that is how we change the world is by thinking outside of the box. Well, and I think the other thing that's important as we're talking about working with children who have trauma that in talking to, to them, of course, may be something that's important to them. Um, but some children have a lot of hard difficulty with words. So using art as a mechanism for healing, um, I think is also an important, um, um, an important intervention to offer them. So do you work with um, some of your other students with art or just only with your yoga students? Can you maybe talk a little bit more about that? Um, mostly with my yoga students, because at the college, we have a curriculum we need to follow that's approved by our Early Childhood Education Registry and our capital here in British Columbia. Um, but in yoga, I always bring in mindful-based art activities, so activities that will you know, hopefully bring about a sense of calming, some patterning, sequencing, things that are nature-based. I also do an outdoor um, mindfulness-based group with um, a bunch of youth. Uh, and we go out and we do hikes and we we just sort of follow their lead and see where it takes us. So we might do fort building. We might learn about the plants in our area, um, just tree hugging because we know that trees have energy and uh, we talk about how everything is connected and just do some of that grounding work out in nature and through art activities when we can't get out in nature. Well, so you said we do some of that grounding work. Why is that important for children that are neurodivergent? Uh, because I think it keeps us in the moment um, and it's something that's concrete that we can do. So we can touch the trees, we can touch the earth, um, we can feel things, we can talk and describe that and and be in the moment, the smells, all of those things around. And it just brings children into that moment instead of thinking about the future or thinking maybe about what they did wrong or or what might happen when they go to school the next day or, or whatnot. And so it just brings them a bit more into balance and following their lead versus telling them what they need to do because we want children to read their body signals and understand what feels positive for them or what's um what's uh what helps them feel more um pleasant as we use in crim yeah and i think that that whole idea of where you, many people are using the term body literacy so we want to help children learn to read and write and learn mathematics but we also want them to learn about the sensations inside their body and in the relationship of them being in the present moment because if you've had trauma as a child that being in the present moment becomes really important because then all those multi-sensory reminders of the trauma can the volume can get turned down? I would think about you touch the touching the nature and the the tree. So go ahead, Karen. Please continue. So those are things I practice myself. I don't ever ask a child to do something or anyone to do something that I myself don't do because I need to know what kind of sensations it brings up for me as a person with PTSD. So I use a lot of those 
um, mechanisms and coping skills for myself. I go out in nature when I'm feeling dysregulated or when my PTSD symptoms are really high and activated. Um, it's very healing for me. I practice my own yoga meditation. Sometimes I even just go into a small space and turn out all the lights and the sounds and just, you know, have a little bit of sensory break. Um, so my, my system can regulate itself again. Uh, so I use the wellness, the wellness skills, especially the help now skills a lot. Oh, the community resiliency model. Of course, that yes. makes me very happy there, Karen. Yes. <laughs> yes, my favorite one is I, when I'm really, um, when my, uh, when I'm really activated with my PTSD, I count backwards from a hundred by threes. <laughs> And that helps to down-regulate your nervous system yes. to get back into your zone of well-being. Oh, my yes. God. Because it takes me, my focus is now on that versus what I'm spiraling in or my or my activation or my symptoms. Well, and, and I'm just wondering if we could maybe even unwrap that a little bit. Because if children, for example, are in a situation where they have been traumatized by war and all the traumas that can happen in Canada or the United States or other places in the world, those multi-sensory reminders are what knock people off of being able to pay attention, to do their schoolwork, sometimes just to be kind to the people around them. And, and what's hard about that is, and I guess I wanna say this as an old trauma therapist, that many of the paradigms for trauma therapy has to do with talking about what happened to you. But when there are these reminders that some people call triggers, right? That can all of a sudden happen out of the blue, because a car you know, went by you and it had a backfire and all of a sudden you start going into a, a flashback because you were in a war zone and there was loud noises of guns, then it doesn't matter if it's 20 years later. But if you're experiencing that in the present moment, you feel like it's happening. So when you do the help now strategies, it's taking you out of that moment. So I'm just kind of kind of leading up to saying, if you want to say more about that because of your lived experience, I think we really want to underscore how important that is for being able to live life, go to the grocery store, you know, take your kids to the movies, whatever you do in the world. For sure, because I think people look at me and people don't know that I have PTSD, right? You can't see it. Um, and And we do mask, we hide things when we're out in the world because you know, society functions in a certain way. And that takes a lot of energy in itself is just to, even when you're being activated or you're having a hard time um, to go out in the world and do those things, it's exhausting to put on a happy face. Um, so I do use a lot of the strategies for myself. I've adapted them to use with children. So I had one little fella who was really struggling and math was his calming thing. So instead of counting backwards, I would just give him simple math problems, like what's three plus four? What's And that would bring him back into the present moment and help him regulate. I love that. So, I mean, I think that's also adapting a paradigm of an idea that's also based on neuroscience, that if someone is very activated, what can you do that might help to quell the activation? And there's many strategies that can do that. Um, so I, I haven't heard the one yet, three plus four equals seven, but of course that makes total sense, right? In terms of how we adapt things that we learn to help calm us mm -hmm. and that calming us. And you said something to me before we went on air today, and I kind of, maybe we can just talk about that, that a little bit. Another part of Dr. Christina Bethel's work was that when she was looking at children with adverse child experiences, she wanted to see, well, what are the ones that have high ACEs, but they're doing okay? And she found that that was their ability to stay calm when faced with a challenge. And those are the things, that's what you're trying to do, isn't it? Is helping children learn how to 
to read their nervous system? One of the things, I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth either. If you can. For, for sure. Um, even letting children know about how their brain works, like in the basic ways. I, I make little, bra- I call them brain jars. And I don't have one on me, but it's like a bottle, but it's clear. And I tell them, you know, the water is our brain um, and the glitter. You can pick any colors you want are our thoughts and feelings. And when our body is calm, when our brain is calm, we can think and see clearly, but sometimes everything gets twirly whirly and we shake it up. And I'm like, and that's when we can practice things like the different breathing techniques we learn in yoga or the grounding or touching something or the crim- other crim skills that that we do. Um, and children just seeing that visual, they're like, oh, that makes sense. Um, just helping them understand how their body works and that it's not any fault of their own when things get twirly-whirly. Um, that's just how our body and brain responds. But there are things we can do that will bring about a more pleasant sensation, um, whether it's the math or um, going out in nature or, or whatever that may be. You know, it's so interesting that you just, you know, just sparked, I spoke at a conference uh, last week um, for PACES and it was about school shootings. And there was a wonderful mom there who, um, whose child survived the recent shooting in Nashville at the Covenant School. And one of the things that she shared with the group was that they've, they've stopped using those metal water bottles and have asked the parents not to send them to the schools now because those metal water, bo- metal water bottles, if I can say the word, if they would fall to the floor, it sounds like some of the, the gunshots that the children are dealing with the PTSD, the multisensory experiences. And so I think it's really important that we understand that and how the brain works as part of what we call implicit memory, right? So, because if we didn't know that to be true, then how would we change an intervention if, you know, really a lot of children experience something and they're having all these multisensory reminders and the teachers or the parents don't understand what it is. So if we can help people understand, I love your, the I've seen the, the, with the jar or the water bottle, right? With the glitter, because just that simple description then helps them to also remember their skills. But I think it's really important that when we think about how much stimulation there is and how that stimulation can also activate those regions of our brain that are connected to our trauma, our trauma, because of course the brain generalizes to things that are similar and that's why paying attention to it is so important. So anyway, go ahead and you were going to say something. And and I think um, just knowing the children and, you know, we see like in my career, I've seen a lot of children with what people would deem as aggressive behaviors um, and trying to come at it from a different perspective. So I'm not telling the child to calm down because I don't think telling someone to calm down has ever worked. <laughs> it doesn't um, work for me. I don't know if it works for you. <laughs> no. Then calm down uh, usually makes me more upset. If they say that to me. Or trying to get them to talk about it at the time. Like, well, you just hit that person. Now we need to talk about it. And, and I come from a different lens of we don't need to talk about it right now. What we need to do is regulate. So even talking to them about things that they like to get them out, to get their brain back, turned back on, right? We call it, you know, bringing their brain back online. Talking about Pokemon, if I know a child likes Pokemon. Not that I know a lot about it, but they'll tell me about it. And then, you know, I did that with a little fellow who was really dysregulated and was screaming and running around. And it was a school-age child and he hid under the playground. I just crawled under. He's like, I don't want to talk about it. I'm like, that's okay. That's cool. I'm like, but you know what? I just learned about this new Pokemon character. And, and, and he just, you could just see everything just come down. He's kind of like, what? Pokemon? Okay. And on his own time, 
once he was regulated, he told me what had happened. I didn't have to ask or anything, but it was just bringing him down. But if I had kept asking him, well, what's wrong? We need to fix this. Why did you do that? I wouldn't have made any gains. Oh, that is so important. I want to just say a little bit more about that because I think that somebody that doesn't understand how the brain works might look at you going that, what are you talking about Pokemon? He needs to be punished, right? But when you're talking about Pokemon, you had an intention of helping him to be in a calmer state. And what we know when that happens, there's more oxygenated flow blood to our prefrontal cortex that opens our, really our vista becomes more open. Then we can talk about what happened. Well, he pushed me down and that's why I did that. But if you ask at the time and there's constriction, the person literally, you're asking them to do something that they can't yet do and then punishing them for not telling you what it was that you wanted to hear from them. And so I think about how so many times our educational systems, I don't know if this happens in Canada, but I think in the US it has, that not being able to answer the question when you're in a high arousal state becomes part of the punishment. Why didn't you answer? I was speaking to you, talk to me about it, right? Mm -hmm. So when we come from this perspective that really what you're saying, Karen, you come from a trauma-informed perspective that works towards the child's strength about what you knew about the child. And if we all, how would the world be different if we all did that, Karen? Exactly. And I, and I, you know, I try to tell all my students here at the college and, and everyone else I, I encounter that regardless of what we're seeing for each other, there's always something positive and we need to highlight the positive too and make that connection. Um, because for me, that made such a difference to me as a child when somebody tried to actually connect with me and know something about me um, versus just going about their day or judging me um, or thinking that I didn't have anything to offer or make, there's all those judgments that we make about children when we see behaviors or even about families when we see behaviors. And that's what I learned on the downtown east side, just talking with families and seeing the love that they had for their children and that they were doing the best they possibly could at that moment in time. They just needed some support and they needed somebody to have compassion and see them for what they were doing, not for what they weren't doing. Well, and that's an important um, part. Now, if, maybe you can talk a little bit about what that is for people that are listening. They don't know what that part of Vancouver is that you're talking about. What is it? Oh. Yeah. So maybe explain a little bit about it and the judgments that happen, but also what you've learned from the families and children. You know, you just said love. So can you just help us understand a little bit more about that? So the Vancouver, uh, the downtown east side of Vancouver, it, it is changing now. But um, when I worked there, it was considered the poorest postal code in Canada. Um, there was a lot of, there's a lot of transient folks, a lot of folks, um, a lot of ho- unhoused um, folks down there. Uh, a lot of families that are involved with um, the Ministry for Child and Family Development, which is child protection up here. Uh, a lot of families, a lot of uh, um drug usage, people just trying to cope. A lot of pe- a lot of people down there are suffering from um, intergenerational trauma. There's a high Indigenous population, and we know with everything that's happened um, with the Indigenous communities, people just trying to cope and, and survive. Um, but there's a lot of judgment. People really judge that area. I, I see people, you know, that are from out of town or that we have to lock our doors when we drive through there. We have to, and that's not my perspective at all. I found it a very welcoming community, a very resilient community, um, a community that is just trying to do the best they can with what they have and against all this judgment from the greater society. And when you sit down and talk with folks, 
they have a lot of wisdom to share and a different outlook on life that maybe a lot of us haven't seen or don't even give a chance to to breathe life into. Um, we just assume that people have made these choices for whatever reasons, but without hearing the story of what happened and how how they ended up there, what their dreams and hopes are, what they, what information they can share. Um, and so just talking with the families and, and seeing that and seeing the resiliency and seeing their love for the children and seeing them battle um, through their trauma and learning how to regulate and learning that they're like, you know, seeing the little steps that they take and sharing in that joy with them was just so inspiring. So because they, 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 it sounds like there's a lot of suffering in terms of just economic suffering mm-hmm. and, and also the judgment on top of that. When people are living in states of poverty, that's never easy for them to figure out how they're going to feed their kids well enough to do the other things that you have to do to kind of survive in the world. So, um, so is there anything more you want to say about what you learned from them? There's a couple more questions I want to ask you before we leave today. Oh, I'm not quite sure. I'll let you ask the questions, Elaine. Okay, here we go. Well, I guess the, um, you know, I know that you became a crim teacher. How did you decide to do that? And how has that influenced your, um, your work becoming a community resiliency model teacher? Well, I heard about it through one of my yoga trainings. And so, I, of course, being neurodivergent, I had to investigate. <laughs> And so I went to the website and just reading the model and then I had your book and I'm like, wow, this really resonates with me because it comes from a lens of positivity and non-judgment and it provides skills and information that regardless of who you are or where you're from, it's applicable. And I just really liked that it empowered me. It gave me some concrete skills that I could use in my own life and then seeing how much it helped me. I was like, how do I help this? How do I transfer this to children? Or how do I educate more people on how to use these skills? And just understanding even that brain-body connection and all the other information we get in CRIM so that maybe it changes people's perspective a little bit when they see that child having a meltdown or a temper tantrum to look at it from a different lens and ask, you know, I wonder what's happening right now. You know, um, maybe we just need to take a few breaths or maybe we need to shift gears and do something different. Yeah. Um, so that's certainly our hope, I think, is to, we think of all the precious children in the world right now that are suffering. You know, what if we could bring a trauma-informed lens that also strength-based as much as they may be suffering you know, how can we find out, like I think what you did when you were working in that part of Vancouver, oh my gosh, these families love each other so much. They have so much strength. They're doing their best they can in very difficult situations. And sometimes that, just that paradigm shift then helps, I think, us on a societal level, think about, well, then how can we provide different services or how can we change that in terms of um, mitigating the poverty that's being experienced or the food insecurity? I think it helps us all look at people in a different way. I always like to say that we're part of this very amazing common humanity that obviously has some struggles getting along with each other every now and then. But what if we didn't, you know, you know, look at the the differences, but also the things we had in common? Well, so what are your future goals and hopes um, as we're getting as we're going to be getting ready to end our show pretty soon? I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about that. Um, well, my hope is, or my future goal, I guess, however you want to word it, is I'd like to continue um, when I leave this role at the college. 
I would like to continue offering yoga and mindfulness and wellness skills to children and youth. Um, because I think that that's so important. I think we underestimate children and youth and what they comprehend and what they see, that they're very aware of their surroundings and what adults are talking about. Um, and I think we just need to really empower them and give them the skills and also let them know that they're not alone. I think that's why I share my story and I share it in different aspect, different aspects of it, depending on who my audience is or if I can see them face to face. But um, just letting kids know and families know and people know that they're not alone in their suffering, that um, a lot of us have suffered. And just knowing that you're not alone for me was a big, big difference for me. Um, and I think learning to share little bits and pieces um, with people just to open that door like I did for that little boy with the tummy mummy comment. Um, I and I didn't, I didn't share anything else. <laughs> but it was, it was enough. Yeah. You know, what, what also hits me about what you're talking about, I'm experiencing from talking to you is how you really try to meet that person where they are whether they're a little teeny person that's hiding underneath the, the you know, in the cubby or the little boy that was um, outside hiding. I mean, it sounds like you know how to approach those kids so that they feel like, okay, I'm with you. You're having a hard time. And you don't give a judgment to them for being in that situation, which I imagine that many people do. And I think my experiences have taught me not to judge or to judge less. I mean, we all have judgments, but have also taught me to get down on their level because I wished that somebody had done that for me. Well, I have to say, as we're almost getting ready to end right now, is I think that um, Child Care British Columbia made the right choice of giving you an award of excellence, <laughs> my dear friend, Karen. Um, I just love hearing about your work. I certainly want to hear more about it as you um, fulfill your hopes and your dreams for what you're going to be doing with children, not only now, but in the future. Um, if people wanted to get a hold of you, Karen, how would people do that? Um, they can contact me um, via email at info at Baobab Kids, B-A-O-B-A-B Kids at, uh, uh, sorry, dot C-A. <laughs> That's right, because if you're not in the United States, it's .ca, right? Yes. <laughs> okay, that's good. Say it one more time. One more time. Info, I-N-F-O, at Baobab, B-A-O-B-A-B, kids, K-I-D-S, dot C-A. And the Baobab tree is my favorite tree, so that's why it's in there. That's what it's called. So I also want people to know, if for some reason that was too much of a mouthful, you can always send me an email at elaine at resiliencywithin.com, and I will connect you to Karen. Karen, thank you so much for being on the show. I just can't think of a better message today of your message of being kind, compassionate, non-judgmental and really embracing children and families, knowing that at this moment in time, with trauma that may have been experienced, they're doing the best they can. And is there any final word that you would like to say? I think I think just to never give up hope and that adversity doesn't define who we are, but it can help us help others. Well, Karen, and thank you that you really, the trajectory of your life is very hopeful as well and very inspirational. And I want to say to my to my um, listeners that you know that I always end with what else is true as you think about your life and maybe some of the suffering or struggles you are having right now. 
Remember who has supported you through your life. Remember those things that we call resources. And remember sometimes it may be as simple as um, just saying the multiplication tables that may help you get back into your zone. I've learned something new today. Um, but also I want to thank our, our um, the Trauma Resource Institute who sponsors this show. I know they've had a very difficult week in terms of responding to what's happening in the world. And I also want to let people know that you can donate directly to them. They're trying to get the updated platform on their iChill app that costs a lot of money, sadly. And so if any of you could think about donating right now, the Trauma Resource Institute, they would be that would be greatly appreciated so that we can update the app in not only Hebrew, but also into Arabic so that people all over the world that are suffering can get healing from our very simple skills that can help people get back into that zone of well-being. So in any event, thank you so much again, Karen. And to my listeners, until we meet again, this is Elaine Miller-Karis signing off for Resiliency Within. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within, with host Elaine Miller-Karras, is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.